Hello, hello and hello, and also hi. Um, this is Adrian, and I am also hi, and that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, part of my way of being with this world as it's shifting is to give myself some medicine here and there. That allows me to whew, take a deeper breath, move at a slower pace, be more filled with wonder, be in less physical pain, be in less emotional pain. Um, and yeah, I'm basically a huge fan still at this big age of 44 of Le Ganja, Le Marijuana, Le Magical Herb. <laughs> I'm so magical mushrooms, but that's not today's content. Um, oh, I wonder if there's a magical mushroom day. Hmm. Anyway, um, it's 420 yet again, and I'm so grateful that this is a day that I am aware of in my life. Um, it's a day that I always love, and um, I like that it's so close to Earth Day. So Earth Day is on April 22nd, and it feels right to me that we have this moment where everybody's just like puff, puff, and then look, we love the Earth, and there's a huge overlap in all of that. And we thought that it would be sweet to replay for y'all this episode we did a few years ago on 420, which was me um, being interviewed in my high state for the people. Because, um, you know, I think there's some famous pothead type people where you're like, oh yeah, they're high all the time. And then I think there's a lot of people who are relying on this medicine, but still in a closeted sort of way. And so it's something that I like to, I don't know, just be a little bit more out about that I do some of my best thinking and visioning from this state. And I have done a lot of great writing from this state. I'm able to hear so much more and find the poetics of the world from this state. So I just wanted to say that's where I'm at. <laughs> this is where I post from. And um, and I hope that you enjoy a re-listen to this episode if you've never heard it before. Um, wait, no. <laughs> if you've heard it before, re-listen. What? And then if you've never heard it before, I hope you enjoy being introduced to it. Okay, um, let's all drink some water. I think that people should get high before they listen to this. Otherwise, I don't know if I can vouch for anything that happens during the show. Um, I don't really have a sense of that. But I want people to really feel free to be more and more open, not just uh, about the fact that they get high, but about who they are when they are high and that there's nothing um, to be ashamed about, about these different ways that you can invite your mind to be or your mind to be in relationship with the world or to see the world. Because um, I think that that, at least for me, has also been a line that I'm often like, oh, if I'm 
if I'm writing, I have to be not high. You know, unless, lately I've been giving myself permission, especially when writing fiction, to get high enough to let my mind wander outside the boundaries of the current constructs. And I find that to be very rewarding. And so then I'm like, oh, what happens if I do that when I'm thinking about nonfiction concepts as well? And I still haven't got to a place where I can really write those very well when I'm high, but I can definitely do extended thinking in that space. All right. So this is Adrian, <clears throat> and I am um, high. <laughs> So I'm setting up some things, um, and we'll see if I'm actually able to pull off what I want to set up before I get too high to do that. So my dream is that I have Planet Earth 2 just visually on um, in the background because that's one of the things I love, and on a different device that I have Beyonce's, Beyonce's Coachella performance. Put your hands together like this. So that I'm just sort of sitting behind, sitting between two kinds of excellence um, as I move through this conversation slash basically an interview. Adrian, um, Genjo and I have some questions for you and we're going to ask them one at a time. Which peanut butter is the people's peanut butter, chunky or creamy? I think creamy peanut butter is definitely the more accessible peanut butter. Um, Like it feels like the peanut butter that, you know, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you have your teeth or not, like if you're a dog, um, you can have creamy peanut butter and enjoy it. Um, I think the, I think chunky peanut butters, it's fine. It just takes work. Um, but it also feels like if you're trying to just like get a sense of food and you're not really able to eat like the level of food that you want, then chunky can do some good things. I think the the fine point in here is like freshly ground peanut butter is actually that that jam. It's really delightful and so good. And it can feel like it's tending towards chunky because it's just got that thickness. So that's really the people's. And I feel like that's the one that we have to learn how to do when the apocalypse comes is like, it's not going to be about creamy. It's just going to be like, there's some nuts, y'all. Like, let's, let's put these to use. Um, so one of the reasons that it felt really important to me to have something official happen on 420 is I am... Um, I don't think of myself as a pothead, but I guess most potheads don't. Um, But I definitely am someone who, for my entire adult life at least, has enjoyed um, partaking in marijuana. And I do it in a variety of different ways, all of which are enjoyable. I vape, I do edibles, I make edibles, I um, uh, like you know, which means I make like butter and then I make that butter into like awesome cookies and stuff like that. Did Beyonce's Coachella change the world overnight? And in what way? 
Beyonce's Coachella performance, or Beachella, as we will now know that night. Well, oh, the thing that's interesting, I guess this is interesting, is like 420 is on a Friday, and I believe the next day she's going to perform at Coachella again. So this question of like, does it change the world overnight? Like, absolutely, it changes the world overnight because there was a huge number of people, I would get, I would bet, there were a huge number of people before Saturday night happened who didn't know what Coachella was, right? Like you may have heard like, oh, Beyonce's performing at Coachella, but basically it's just a music festival. Like who cares, right? And it's a music festival, especially if you're not going, like especially who cares? And so then it's like for her to come on there and be like, hi, like I am not even going to concern myself with who's actually here, which is really the opposite of how most people approach any kind of live performance. Most of the time you're like, oh, I'm in this city. And even Beyonce does this. Like every city she goes to, every place she goes to, she's like, hi, this place. Like when she came to Detroit, she's like, hey, Detroit, like here's my black cultural references, Motown Museum. I know what Detroit is. You know what I'm saying? Like she had a real sense of place being important. And the people she was talking to is like, this is a black city. It's a mostly black audience. I'm here for it. I'm paying attention to it. And then Coachella is like her being like, yeah, no, mm, y'all are not who I feel like interacting with right now. Like you can be here for sure. You can watch me do this. Absolutely. But this is not for you. This is me using the resources of Coachella to reach a huge global audience of people who've never heard of Coachella, but will break their backs and do everything they can to figure out how to watch me do anything. Basically, she just did a live best hits visual album for us and by us i mean for black people who either went to a historically black college or university or strongly identify with um it with them um because i don't think she i mean i think all of us are like do we even go to college um so yeah i think she changed the world in that way i also think like i keep watching the performance over and over again it's very, very rich in a very like, um, in a way that I think is like to me true to Beyonce, which is like I'm not surrendering any complexity here. I want to bring my whole self in, and I want to read something that my friend Celeste. Let's see if I can find this. My friend Celeste is hilarious, and Celeste and I, I like to think of us as being like way ahead of the game when it comes to like publicly loving Beyonce, shamelessly loving Beyonce um, and loving her as like black politicized women and not like really being here for or that interested in the whole like respectability politics that knee jerk reaction or like, you know, oh, she's a capitalist. And it's just like everyone is living inside of capitalism and she is succeeding and she is succeeding at life. She is succeeding at um, being an amazing performer who is complex and like transforming herself and growing up in front of us and the way, yeah. Anyway, I just like, there's like, there's 
for us. We have found plenty of room for her to... Wait, I got to sneeze. <clears throat> Whoa. All right. So... Anyway, there's plenty of room for Beyonce's growth. We're really interested in here for Beyonce's development and have been for a while. And so she and I are like, you know, by the time Lemonade came out and everyone else was geeked out, we were able to just sit with each other and and watch that knowing like we were ready for this. We were expecting this. Like we're not, our minds are not being blown because we're surprised. Our minds are just being blown because we're being so deeply satisfied. So I want to read you this that she posted. She said, I can imagine Coachella's reaction when Beyonce came to the meeting like, I've been dreaming. While these babies grew in my belly, this is what I want. Coachella. Uh, that's half the budget for the entire festival. B, I said this is what I want. B staff. So how black should we make this? We made a list of options like HBCU Homecoming, Fela, Black Power, or Ancient Egypt. Hmm. Let's do all of it, plus the anthem. B-Staff. You know, Coachella is mostly Caucasian. Solange interrupts. She said all of it. That one staff person. The crowd won't get it. B, we'll bring our own crowd and put them on stage. Tell Coachella to increase the budget again. We need 100 people in costume. Miss Tina taps that staff person. Oh, let's talk outside. Oh, don't be worried, sugar, but bring all your stuff with you. (laughs) And then, B, how many black styles of dance can you fit into two hours? Frank, Jaquel, and the choreographers. All of them. And it feels like that, to me, this is this year of doing that repeatedly, of being like, we're going to offer a complex thick, very rich, um, like, kind of blackness. So it's not, you know, we talked about this with the Black Panther episode, I believe, that it's not like a minstrel show blackness. It's not like a flat blackness. It's not like um, blackness in performance of blackness or for others, but it's really like this is the huge full realm of our possibilities and there's tons of stuff you're going to have um you're going to have Beyonce reframing her own work drunk in love by putting in the middle of it a gorgeous pair dance to Nina Simone's Lilac Wine which is all about drinking more than you want to drink um in a state of deep loneliness and deep longing and, and loss. Right. And then like having that in the middle of the song where we would normally have Jay-Z's verse and we know Jay-Z is there and he could come out and do his verse. She's like, no, 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 no. That time has passed for, for right now we're doing this. We're talking about the complexity of love, the complexity of loss, the complexity of grief. She does that. She's got the step teams coming out there. She's got that gorgeous, thick, uh, sister with the batons rolling those things around. Um, she's got herself doing a split on the bleacher for partition. I mean, there's just like, you know, moves on moves on moves and just the um, ridiculous shape that she's in, you know, like to do an hour and 45 minutes where she took very few breaks. Um, and during those breaks, she's changing her clothes and her nails. Um, you know, Kendrick Lamar just won the Pulitzer Prize for 
the album Damn, which I'm like, yes, I'm here for it. And I had the thought that like, if we're giving out awards for like people doing, you know, like what they're actually doing, and we're just like, can we name what they're actually doing? Then I think Beyonce should get like an Olympic gold medal. Um, and Celeste, I, I floated this idea to Celeste. She thought we could also see her get like a Nobel Peace Prize for just the way that she's, you know, moving love beyond borders and particularly generating in the world love for black people and black culture, which that it's immeasurable, right? What happens when people start to be like, oh, this is a value, a value to us beyond monetary value. Like there's something here that nourishes us. I mean, it's been deep, you know, it's deep to figure that out because I'm like, it nourishes y'all, but like, it's not necessarily for you. Um, like I, I saw something today where some like white folks were spreading the word about let's build Wakanda. And I had a feeling, you know, I was like, well, <laughs> you know, um, there's also something about like black folks producing things for other black folks and it can be loved and acknowledged and celebrated by other folks. But there's, there's, I'm just interested in this question of like, you know, like Wakanda is a space that black folks generate and it's safe in part because there's not a white presence there. Um, and then from that place, there's relationship building and shaping of the world that can happen, you know, in this fictional world, right? Beyonce is a real world. <laughs> and I'm like, as a real black woman, like there's stuff that she's offering to other very real living black folks that we need. And I appreciate that she doesn't shrink any of it, doesn't water any of it down. In fact, she escalates. Every single time she comes out, she escalates her blackness and makes it less and less um, subtle, less and less, um, you know, it's not, it's not like, oh yeah, you know, a little blackness sprinkled on top. She's like, no, it's down in the root system here. And it's what makes me like the things you love about me, they come from this blackness. <sighs> She's so good. I fucking love her. What are some things that are medicine and also not? Ooh. So part of what I wanted to do this show high was to say, I think that weed is medicine. I really do believe it's medicine. I don't believe it's always medicine. Um. I definitely have been in situations where I was like, this is, you know, I'm not using this medicinally right in the second. This might be recreational. This might be numbing, right? Um, I'm not, I'm not closed to, or I'm not above the perceptions or knowledge that weed is not always medicinal. And I will say that the majority of ways that I have found myself using it are medicinal. I have this amazing cannabis salve called After Five Salve that my friend Caitlin Sislin creates. And it doesn't really get me high, but it does like make my body relax in this way that's like dope. Um, so I rub that on my arthritis places, like my knees and my hands. After I wrote the book, I was like, I need this salve all over my arms and hands and fingers. So I wore it all out. Um, and then there's, you know, like the way that my back hurts, the way that I cramp during my period, like weed is definitely the best medicine in those spaces. I think it's deep that for years, the place where I heard of people um, ingesting weed in public, publicly acknowledged ways was folks who had cancer. It was like, well, clearly this is the best medicine. It does the most pain relief and nausea relief. Um, so in those ways, I feel it's medicine. I also feel like it can be really medicinal for the mind and 
for someone like me, I smoke it because um, I'm a worker and I have a tendency towards workaholism. Like it's very easy for me to wake up in the morning with work kind of ideas in my head. Um, especially because I do work that I fucking love now. So it's very easy for me to like wake up in the morning and be like, here's an idea. Here's some writing I need to do. Here's like something coming up for an agenda I'm developing and just work from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep without really noticing, pausing, breathing, um, being able to be still, being able to disconnect from contact with others. Um, So for me, when I get high, it's a way to say to my brain, like, oh, you don't have to be on right now. You can think thoughts that are outside of anything that you're producing for other human beings. And you can just sort of drop in, tune in to, um, you know, what else is magical in the universe. This is why planet Earth is like my jam because I watch it. And when I'm feeling really hopeless about the world, Um, I get a little high and I watch planet earth and I remember, you know, something that allows me to relax enough to be like, all right, I'm connected to those things. Like I live on this incredible planet with, you know, bioluminescent beings and penguin daddies that are like, you know, traveling thousands of miles basically, um, over the course of a season to feed their young. And, you know, I live in a world of, you know, little magical monkeys and magical mushrooms. And like, it's just, it's actually not a bad world. Like maybe our species isn't doing so great at kicking it, um, enjoying it, loving it, letting ourselves land and be a part of it. But that doesn't mean we're not a part of it. You know, I've been noticing a lot lately that there's more and more people in my life now who are high constantly. And I wonder, I wonder about anything that needs to happen constantly as a medicine, right? Like I wonder about this with like even antidepressant drugs or, um, you know, when folks are like giving their children Ritalin or anything like that, that I'm like, hmm, uh, you have to receive this every single day then it feels like it's almost like um, this is something I'm bonding with my system and managing my system with. But I think of medicine as like, here's something that heals, um, that shifts me in a way that heals. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting to me always to think of like, what are substances that become a part, a ritual of life, like a a daily need versus something that's a, a substance that we're using for the sake of healing and then, you know, but then I think it's also this question of like, what is healed? What is healing? Um, and, you know, there's medicines like the ones my dad has taken since his heart attack that help him live. Right. And I understand that like the daily taking of those is, is really crucial for his well-being. Um, so uh, but that's one of the things I wonder about a lot is like, what's the distinction between medicine and numbing and in my own life is one of the things I pay attention to a lot. And especially as I'm, as I'm, as we're moving through this phase of apocalypse, I've been noticing this a huge amount is like, am I depressed? Am I, um, you know, where, what is my tendency to numb right now? And 
how do I get in right relationship with it? Because I don't want to shut it down, right? Like if my whole system is like, girl, you numb. And then I'm like, nah, 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 it's it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. Like, I'm fine. I'm like, no, um, I'm not, you know, I was like, if I do need something, then how do I make sure that I'm giving that to myself? Um, even if it is numb time or, you know, a year without my glasses, which I've done this past year, has been like, I, I can, you know, I'm seeing what I need to see. I really want to, in the most visceral way, like tie myself into what's happening at the most local level. And I'm um, right around me, like in relationship with others. What's stopping you? Stopping me? I wonder if anything is stopping me. Right now, I don't feel like I have felt in the past very stopped by other people's expectations on my life. I have felt stopped by my relationship with my body. Um, I have felt stopped by financial resources and scarcity thinking. But lately I've been feeling very, um, if not unstoppable, then like it would be really hard to stop the momentum that I've been leaning into. And I feel like part of that is because I have recognized that like it's not me um, in, in I think the way that I was holding it for a long time. It's like, I'm, I'm responsible somehow for delivering in my lifetime something miraculous or something earth-shaking or, you know, something that will um, help people get free. And I feel like I really let that go. In the process of writing Emergent Strategy, I feel like I let that go. It was just like, I can't I can't do all that stuff. Um, I can't set out to do all that stuff and actually do anything meaningful. What I can set out to do is like find the places where I never want to stop and like recognize that, oh, like my gifts are in those places. I think this is true for everyone, that your gift is in the place where you are the most passionately interested because like what it takes to actually move, move anything forward is that passionate obsession. I think what Octavia calls it positive obsession like if you're not positively obsessed, then you're doing your work from a place of obligation. You're doing your work from a place of, you know, I just got to make these ends meet. Um, and what it takes, you know, whether you're a stripper or a researcher or a photographer for planet Earth or, you know, someone who facilitates social justice movements or whatever it is, is like a positive obsession with that work. And so what I feel like, you know, the things that used to stop me were, when I wasn't aligned with my own positive obsession and was really trying to figure out like how to please other people inside of their positive obsessions. Um, and like, you know, we can do that. You use your talent, you end up using your talent for like, here's what someone else needs and I'll, I'll apply myself to that. Um, and like, you know, that kind of self-sacrifice, I think maybe is satisfying to some people, but I found myself dissatisfied by it. Um, and I felt like, I couldn't tell if it was more selfish to indulge that or more selfish to acknowledge it and change. Because um, I was like, oh, if I indulge this and I'm just like martyring myself all the time out of obligation, 
that seems like egotistical too, like just in a slightly different way, but not necessarily better. Like I, then it's just like walking around being like, I'm so great. Look how great I am at sacrificing myself and look at all the nice things I'm doing for other people. And it's like, well, I don't know, just where's the motivation coming from? Now I feel like I do nice things for other people, but never out of obligation. You know, like if someone's like, hey, can you share this page? Even like down to that, people are like, can you share this thing I'm fundraising or whatever? Like I'm like, only if I'm actually positively moved by it, excited by it, feel connected to the person doing it, you know? I'm like, I don't want to be in those kind of transactional relationships. I really want to be moving from a place of um, genuine interest. And so that that's what led to emergent strategy being able to happen was that, you know, I was just like, let me let go of a book that anyone else would want to necessarily write about this and just be like, well, I'm geeked out about this. <laughs> you know, I'm really geeked out about birds. I'm really geeked out about flocking. I'm really geeked out about uh, mushrooms. I'm really geeked out about social change processes and how humans go through those. Um, and I believe that I deserve, uh, not deserve, but I believe that like I have something unique to say at this vantage point, something that's interesting to me to think about and say at this vantage point. So that's how that book happened. And I felt very unstoppable, like in the process of making that book, if that makes sense, like as it was coming, I had moments of intense doubt, like who am I to do this? But I didn't feel stoppable. Like that distinction felt clear to me that it was like, I'm doing this. Why aren't we in space or maybe living underwater? Ooh, that's good. I challenge this question. We are living in space. Like, we are on a planet that is floating in space. We're definitely living in space. We live in a planet that has an atmosphere around us that allows us to survive. But we are living in space. Um, And I think the reason we're not living off of this planet in space is because of white supremacy and capitalism and that people are just so worried about the wrong things about domination and um so you know i think there's a way that we could be like i want to be in right relationship on this planet and explore this universe like i hate that it feels like sometimes those two things are juxtaposed against each other like you can only love the planet or want to go to space and it's like "Mm, i think you know get you a human who can do both i think that we can live on this planet and um have really awesome space travel programs and i think we'd be really far along with that if folks weren't always like going to war and bombing the shit out of each other in order to establish dominance over resources on this planet, um, primarily dominance of white men. So it's very annoying. I think the reason we're not living underwater is related to that. Like, I think there's a lot of um, technologies that can make that possible at this point, like pressurizing. I think that creating domes and spaces underwater. I know that there's a few like hotels that have experimented with this. Um, But, you know, it takes bravery and it takes experimentation. And I also worry about it from a colonization perspective. Like, I love oceans. I love the things that happen in oceans. I'm watching the oceans, planet Earth thing now. Like, there's this big turtle that's just, like, floating around and looking all gorge and just, like, elegant, slow. And I'm like, I don't want humans to go fuck up that turtle situation. And I generally think that humans are, like... 
locusts, right? Like we're not necessarily good for an environment. So I think the main reason we're not living underwater is because we have not figured out how to be a benefit to the underwater community. I think that the moment that that happens, we'll find a way. How do you know that? Um, how do I? <laughs> how do I know that? Um, the only way I know anything is I feel it in my bones. Like I feel things very like, oh yeah, this is true. Um, and early on in life, I decided to just go with that, trust it. So when I say that, I'm like, oh, uh, the first thing that comes like up from my body about like why we're not living in space is like, is these foolish ass governments that are like focused on the wrong things and like destroying us instead of thinking in generative ways about how we get to be in this universe. So it's like, yeah, obviously that's what it is. Um, I also know a lot of things because of Google and Wikipedia. Um, I feel like I've been an early adopter of outsourcing the things in my brain that are that can be held elsewhere. So I really try to use as much of my brain as possible for um, not necessarily original thinking, but like ideological thinking, contextual thinking, synthesizing, um, relationship building thinking. And if there's stuff that's like, this is history, this is factual, this is data, this is phone numbers, things like that, then I'm like, awesome. If that can be, you know, if it can be stored somewhere in a hard drive, outsourced, like let's put it there. If it can't be stored somewhere, which so far, like my emotional processes that help me synthesize human connection can't be like stored in a hard drive. So that is what I want to spend most of my brain power on. So that's the main thing that I know or way that I know things. Uh Uh-oh. What is your body? Mm-hmm. All right. That's what my body is. <laughs> my body is water. I have a very, very, very felt sense of my body being water, that I am a fractal of the ocean that happens to be enfleshed and walking around. But I get moved by the moon. I feel like a walking tide pool sometimes. Um, I feel emotive in a way that is like waves um, rippling out from impact. So it takes me a while to feel my feelings sometimes because, you know, the point, depending on where the point of impact is, it can take me a little while to actually notice, oh, that, that emotion is shaping me. That emotion has changed who I am. Um, so that's what my body is. What is it that you wish a bitch would? I love this question. What is it I wish a bitch would? Um, this is so interesting. This is so not how I, I think, but I, um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, everything that comes to mind feels just so mean. Um, oh, Okay. Betsy DeVos, I wish a bitch would try to come to like any Detroit organizing meeting with actual Detroit educators. Um, The person who is holding the presidential office of the land, um, I just wish a bitch would like 
suck on my balls. Suck on my balls. I just wish a bitch would like come over for tea sometime. I feel like I could handle that in a way that could produce some real deep internal soul searching and possibly possibly even like the kind of breakdown that can be really good for you, right? Is if I am a miracle of a being, then why am I living my life like a horrific devil dumpster fire person? And I think we could have those conversations. I wish a bitch would try to try to step to me. <laughs> um, you know, I wish I don't wish Oprah would run for president because I think she's living her very best life. But I wish she would go ahead and tell us like who she I feel like if we could be like, here's the next president. It's Toshi Reagan or whatever it is. And we're just like, this is clearly the best person. We can trust them to do this job really well. It's Jessica Bird or, um, you know, I'm just thinking of like black folks who think systematically, like not just folks who have been in the electoral process, but who I know think of it as an entire system. Um, Tinjiwe would actually be freaking great as the president. Anyway, so I wish that we could go ahead and identify that person. And that Oprah would just be like, this is the next president, because I do feel like that's a way that she could use her influence um, to make sure that the next black president is identified. Because I actually think having that next black, I think that's what people were doing when they were like, run for office, is saying like, we need a black person on our horizon. (laughs) Like, we need someone on the horizon that we can like, dream towards and start to manifest reality to um, to attain, to elect, you know? So I wish that, I wish, I, I'm not calling her like a bitch in that way. I'm just like, yo, my bitch, like my bitch Oprah, you know? I love you and I wish that you would, <laughs> um, you know, put um, probably... I feel like Tarana Burke could do this job. Like, I feel like there's so many people who are like, have the kind of organizing capacity and a capacity to like hold the attention of a lot of people without losing their integrity. And that's kind of like what this next president's going to need to have. Cause you're coming in after someone who's like a reality TV show star. And so they're used to having all this attention, but they use it for nefarious purposes and like generating more attention through scandal and crisis. And like, you have to have such shamelessness in order to to be willing to play that game. So it feels important that we have someone come in next who's like, I don't want to play that game. Integrity matters to me. Dignity matters to me. Um, but I can handle having a lot of attention on me. And when it comes, I just put on another fabulous gown and slay everybody. And then, like, you know, support young people to do a walk out of their high school or whatever other, you know what I'm saying? Like, Toronto's just like, here, I'm being a leader. I look like a 10. It's I'm winning. So actually, I wish Toronto would run for office. I wish a bitch would do that. What aren't you getting from therapy? <laughs> we love you. We love you. So I'm not in therapy right now in the, in the traditional way, although I am always in a somatic healing journey. 
um, with different somatic practitioners. And so I'm not getting anything from therapy right now. Um, the thing that I did not get from therapy when I was in it was support in my um, explorations with open relationship. I feel like my therapist was like um, down for everything else and down for, um, you know, following me through my suicidal ideation and following me through my um, intense self-doubt and following me through imposter syndrome and following me through exploring my childhood traumas and following me through all these different paths that were like actually thick territory where we're like, you know, got to have a machete and like moving through like the overgrowth. Just like, what is here under Bush? Like what's going on? And so it's like no big deal really to then come into the realm of like <laughs> relationship anarchy. But that's the place where all, most of my therapists are like, wait, what? You want to do what? That's insane. <laughs> that's so weird to me. Um, so that's one of the things that like, I'm glad that more and more like queer lifestyle folks are actually moving into these professional spaces because I do think that's really, I feel like therapy has a role to play in liberating society from our shame and allowing us to move towards actual pleasure, actual satisfaction, actual authentic connections that are based on what we really long for. Like therapy is such a place to be like, oh, I'm a fucking human. Thank you for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC, which I just want folks to know has nothing to do with like being PC. It means podcast, but I think I'm the only person who ever thought of that abbreviation. So anyway, we're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. And we do, I have to say, it's really nice when those things happen. Um, another thing you can do that is very helpful and also just makes a bitch cry is if you go write reviews on Apple Podcasts. I think this is only for iPhone people, Android people. How can you show us love? Like you're out there being original and like, you know, not you know, held down by the thumb of the man at Apple. So I guess just being such a radical person is what makes you useful to us. So How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Thank you so much to Autumn and Genjo for generating these questions and for being a friend to me in high moments throughout my adult life. It's just been so great to always feel safe to be high around y'all. I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to take a bath, and I hope you all take baths wherever you are. And baths are a great place for smoking. I think the steam and all that just brings it all that much higher. So have a good night. Ciao. Music for today's show comes from Mother Cyborg, Tunde Alanaran, and Blue Dot Sessions.